Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. And I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In her phenomenal memoir, Sue Monk Kidd describes in detail the crisis point in her spiritual life. She, a follower of Jesus, a wife, and a working mom was right in the thick of the chaos that is midlife. Her kids had now grown old enough to uh, begin to find some independence, and so she was functioning more as like soccer mom chauffeur than she was stroller pushing and playground sitting at this particular stage. And with a little bit more independence for her children came a little more independence for her. And so she reached to pick up some of those aspects of her life that she had deferred in the toddler years, her work and her hobbies and her passions. But she was also confronted by so much that she had deferred within herself in the daily chaos that is raising toddlers. Resentment that had built up in her marriage over time. Some loss of her sense of self, like who she used to be she wasn't anymore, but who she was becoming hadn't come into clear focus yet either. And then some loss of God of knowing God in her everyday, ordinary life the way she had been used to before. And so in the midst of all of that, she traveled to St. Meinrad Arch Abbey, which is a Benedictine monastery in the state of Indiana, in an attempt to slow down and sort some of this out. But even there, living at the slow, contemplative pace of the monks for a time, her peace was constantly being interrupted by the inner chaos that she carried with her even to the monastery. She would pray with the monks in the chapel, but then walk out of that chapel feeling calm and peaceful and close to God and be immediately confronted by this inner itch a need to keep on moving and to act and to solve, a need for some productivity or a productive end to this retreat, a need to have uh, a tidy way of describing uh, the fruit of this retreat to her husband when she returned back home. So there she is, externally quiet, but internally so noisy. And she notices a monk sitting underneath a tree on this quiet midwinter morning, the perfect picture of peace, a beanie pulled low down over his ears to keep warm, and she approaches him and says, you're so still and quiet. How can you just wait? Wait on God and wait on your own healing. How can you wait so patiently in the moment? I just can't get used to the idea of doing nothing. He broke into a wonderful grin. Well, there's the problem right there, young lady. You've bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. Then he took his hands and placed them on my shoulders, peered straight into my eyes and said, I hope you'll hear what I'm about to tell you. I hope you'll hear it all the way down to your toes. When you're waiting, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. If you can't wait, you can't become what God created you to be. 
Currently, we're in this teaching series and practice titled Unforced Rhythms of Grace, Nine Core Practices for a Rule of Life. And the heart behind the whole thing is Jesus' compelling invitation to a light burden and soul rest summarized in nine core practices that make up the easy yoke of Jesus. And so far, we've covered prayer and uh, scripture, and up for today is solitude. We want to increasingly become a community of peace and quiet in a culture of anxiety and noise through the practice of solitude. Now, solitude, explained as simply as possible, is the spiritual practice of being still and quiet in the presence of God, which sounds simple enough. But of course, it's not as easy as it seems because you and I have a whole lot more in common with Sue than we do with that monk in the beanie sitting under the tree. You see, Western culture, generally speaking, resists solitude. Stillness and quiet is a challenge in our hyper-distracted attention deficit world. Recent studies have concluded that American college students, on average, switch tasks every 65 seconds, focusing on a single topic for 19 seconds at a time. And before the boomers among us begin to feel superior, you should also know that a similar study was done on the average working adult to discover that Working adults focus on a single task for an average of three minutes at a time before switching to the next thing. All to say, you and I are habitually distracted. And we may be tempted to assume that social media and the cell phones we carry around in our pockets are the culprits of that, and those certainly haven't helped, but the primary culprit seems to be the amount of information that the human person is taking in today. According to the research of the University of Catalonia, a 2007 survey concluded that if you added up all of the information a human being takes in each day, like television, podcasts, books, all of it, it would amount to the equivalent to 174 85-page newspapers per day. Add another 15 years to that, and you've got the amount of information your brain is trying to process every day. We are fire-hosing our brains with content, with far more information and content than we can actually process. Making a conclusion on all this research, lead researcher Soon Lehman said, what we are sacrificing is depth. Depth takes time, depth takes reflection, it takes commitment. The cultural waters you and I swim in are frenzied, hurried, and distracted, training our inner lives to be noisy, far too noisy, for sitting beneath a tree on a midwinter morning, perfectly content in the peace and quiet of waiting. We are sacrificing depth for breadth. Easy. We'll just slow down then. Not so fast. Most of us have not become hyper-distracted, over-hurried consumers passively. We've done it actively. We've developed a set of habits that make stillness and quiet next to impossible because of our muscle memory. We touch our phones on average 2,617 times per day, looking at that little screen for three hours and 15 minutes. We watch shows in the evenings, often over dinner. We listen to podcasts while we exercise and commute. Uh, we listen to music or to audiobooks while we fold the laundry or do the dishes. We've cultivated this way of being in the world that eliminates quiet stillness and inactivity. So of course, sitting quietly under a tree like a monk, doing nothing in particular, with nothing in particular to direct my attention toward, gives us the jitters of an addict in need of a fix. 
Marianne Woodman, an expert on addiction, defines an addictive behavior as anything we use repeatedly and compulsively to stop our personal growth. Hmm. She writes, or, or I'm sorry, uh, clinical psychologist Ann Wilson Schaaf uh, describes process addictions, which occur when a person becomes hooked on a specific set of actions to avoid internal pain or personal growth. And Wilson Schaaf writes, an addictive behavior keeps us unaware of what is going on inside of us. And by that definition, wouldn't it be fair to say that my need to put earbuds in while I'm doing a mindless task alone, or my inability to go on a jog without a soundtrack, or the way that I can't remember the last time I had a Netflix series going, or the way I cannot wait for a friend to go to the bathroom at a restaurant without taking my phone out of my pocket. Wouldn't it be fair to call all of these behaviors addictions, or at the very least, compulsive? Mark Twain says, our busyness is like the weather. Everyone complains about it, but no one does anything about it. <laughs> and maybe that's because we don't want to. Or even if we did, we're not really sure how. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus said that to Peter, one of his closest friends, in Matthew chapter 16. It's one of Jesus' more jarring moments. Jesus says a whole lot of really comforting stuff, like the whole light burden and easy yoke thing I was talking about a minute ago, but he also says some, some really jarring confrontational stuff, like get behind me Satan to one of his close friends in the middle of a conversation. Now in context, Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus had just broken the news that while Peter and the others were expecting the Messiah to come as a triumphant king to win a military victory, he was something even better than that. He had come to win the most decisive victory in, the human, in human history uh, by sacrifice and death. Peter, noticing that Jesus was now far off of his imaginative script of where the whole story was going, pulled Jesus aside to correct him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, one of the first lessons that you learn as a child is that name-calling is impolite, <laughs> right? No, no matter how off-base someone else is, name-calling is always out of the question. And this uh, statement from Jesus comes quite literally five verses after he had called Peter by a very different name, the rock on which he would build the church. So which one is it? I mean, this sequence of events seems uh, irresponsibly unsettling, to put it mildly. I mean, Judas didn't get this kind of treatment when he sold your life for a handful of coins. So what's the deal, Rabbi? Dallas Willard called hurry the great enemy of the spiritual life for the modern Western person. The great revivalist of spiritual formation in the American church, Richard Foster, he says, in contemporary society, our, our adversary, which is a biblical title for Satan, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung took it a step further than that. Hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. And maybe Foster and Jung aren't using dramatic and archaic language to levy an overstated critique of modern American life. Maybe they're just repeating something that Jesus said to one of his closest friends in the first century Middle East. What if a noisy inner life at its core 
is not the product of our modern, hyper-distracted world, but instead is an ancient and constant tendency to get a step ahead of Jesus, to assume we know where the story is going, and to insist that our spiritual formation move at our pace rather than his. The real issue with a noisy, hurried life is not a frenetic pace or an overstressed psyche or a distracted mind. I mean, all of that is important, and hurry is the culprit of all of it, and it is affecting you probably more than you're aware of, but the real issue with hurry is our forever tendency to get ahead of Jesus, to, like Peter, assume we know where the story is going and rush to get there, to insist, insist that our spiritual formation move to the pace of our culture rather than the pace of our rabbi. Our inner lives, apart from solitude, become reflections of our outer world, noisy, busy, cluttered. What we're sacrificing is depth. Depth takes time, depth takes reflection, and it takes commitment. Solitude is the spiritual practice of allowing Jesus to form our inner lives according to his pace, making our inner lives a compelling contradiction to the world around us rather than a reflection of it. Solitude is a way of giving God space to make uh, me quiet in a noisy world and deep in a shallow culture and to grow up in a forever young city. And that takes us back to our teaching text. So if you would, look back with me at your Bibles at Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. This psalm offers us a picture of the apprentice of Jesus, a child. And that's familiar, right? Jesus uses this image quite a lot. Uh, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let the little children come to me, for to, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, that sort of thing. But the ancient prayer of Psalm 131 gets more specific about the image. Not just any child, a weaned child. Now, as any mother will tell you, for an infant, every need is a crisis. When an infant feels hungry, they don't ask their mom for a snack. They throw themselves into a kicking and screaming, full-blown meltdown. A hungry infant is in crisis, demanding milk and demanding it now until the need is satisfied. And the second that need is met, peace overtakes that little ball of chaos. And they fall asleep, perfectly at rest and content on their mother's chest for an hour or so. Right, until the need is felt again, and then it's a whole nother crisis all over again. For an infant, every need is a crisis, and peace is the temporary satisfaction of my most urgently felt need. And that's how most of us come into the spiritual life. And unfortunately, it's a stage within the spiritual life that many of us never mature beyond. We associate peace with the satisfaction of our needs, and every new need is a new crisis. We are forever rearranging the house of cards that is the circumstances of our lives until the slightest breeze tops the whole thing over, disrupting our peace, and then we're kicking and screaming all over again. For most people, peace is a positive review from my supervisor. 
Peace is a vacation that makes living today bearable. Peace is a satisfying work project or the arrival of the weekend or a new morning routine. Peace is just one week at some point in this academic year when PPS holds school Monday through Friday. <laughs> right? Peace... If you're a teacher in the room, we respect what you do. <laughs> Keep fighting the good fight, okay? <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is that peace is circumstantial, the way most of us define it at least. And that means we are kicking and screaming every time a need disrupts that circumstantial peace. But a weaned child, by definition, is a baby who's grown accustomed to food other than her mother's milk. A weaned child still gets hungry, but she learns to trust her mother as provider rather than demand that the need be met immediately. In other words, the weaned child learns to find peace by her mother's presence, not her mother's milk. When Jesus talked about the faith of a child, he was talking about quiet trust, not neurotic dependence. A child is exemplary, not because they go kicking and screaming to their parent every time they have a need. A child is exemplary as an apprentice of Jesus, not because of helplessness, but because of a willingness to be led and matured and blessed. In his commentary on the Psalms, the German theologian Arthur Weiser states, the follower of Jesus is not like an infant crying loudly for, her, for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper after a struggle has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment for his own wishes. His life center of gravity has shifted. He, no, he now rests no longer in himself, but in God. Psalm 131 offers us a picture of the newborn believer who has matured into a weaned child, a believer who has learned to rely not only on God's power, but to delight in God's presence, knowing God as provider rather than just demanding God's provision. A weaned child, a beautiful image, and something to aspire to. But again, as any mother will tell you, the process of weaning an infant is painful for both the mother and the child because a baby is weaned by being denied what they want by the very person they are supposed to learn to trust. A baby is weaned by kicking and screaming and the mother looking right in that child's face and not giving them what they're kicking and screaming over. A baby is weaned when a mother satisfies a desire at the proper time, not the infant's timetable, and by what they need, solid food, not what they think they want, milk. What Psalm 131 seems to be telling us is that growing up in the way of Jesus is uncomfortable and will at times feel like chaos God is doing nothing about. And that means that the way, the only way, 
that we can grow up in the life of faith is by the uncomfortable imperative of waiting. Well, there's the problem right there, young lady. You've bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. When you're waiting, you're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. Sumant Kidd goes on to define spiritual waiting as creating a painfully honest and contemplative relationship with one's own depths, trusting God for the nourishment that I can't produce myself. Waiting is the courageous insistence on living with my deep desire and felt need held out before God for a long time, a whole lot longer than feels comfortable to me, allowing him to wean my soul from dependence on his provision to the true rest of knowing him as provider. One of Jesus' stranger stories is commonly called the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, Jesus began. In first century Israel, this is the posture of an engaged bride-to-be awaiting her wedding day as it draws near with great expectation. But in Jesus' story, there's ten brides. And that's got nothing to do with polygamy and everything to do with an image for the kingdom of heaven, for heaven and earth reunited as one, for the renewal of all things and the banishment of all that pains you and I. It's the same picture that's painted at the end of the whole of the Bible in Revelation 19. But in Jesus' story, the groom takes a a very long time in arriving, and the night seems to last forever. And so all of the oil lamps burn out. Now, five of the brides-to-be waiting uh, brought an extra flask of oil and are able to relight their lamps, but five didn't. And so they leave to go and purchase more oil for their lamps, and while they're gone, the groom comes, and those who left miss out on uh, his arriving. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is telling us a story about preparation, right? Be prepared, or you might miss the king and his kingdom. But I wonder if it's more or at least as much a story about waiting. Because those five who left, they ejected from the discomfort of waiting, of sitting and doing nothing but waiting for light to break the long, dark night that seemed to never go away. They became active again, they got busy, they got productive, and they missed the groom when he broke the night of their waiting. Waiting is hard because it means moving a whole lot slower than we'd like, slower than feels natural to us. Waiting means resisting the urge to get ahead of Jesus on our own spiritual journey. Get behind me, Satan. I wonder if Jesus said it more compassionately than he did sternly. I wonder if he said that to Peter, not like a fire and brimstone preacher or some kind of drill sergeant, but more like a mother weaning her child, looking him right in the eye and denying him what he wanted for the sake of what he needed, gently and lovingly growing Peter up. Because Peter thinks that he wants a warrior and a king, not a suffering savior. And Peter thinks he's ready today, not on the other side of struggle and denial. You see, Jesus had a better gift for Peter than he could ever imagine, but cultivating an appetite for the gift that Jesus actually came to give was uncomfortable and required the slow process of waiting. And one of the revelations that you will have if you read the scriptures honestly is this, God is slow. 
In the Hebrew Bible, Israel waits through 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, and 70 years in exile for God to intervene. But then Jesus shows up. I mean, sure, after another 400-year wait between the prophets and the Messiah, and another 30 years between Jesus' arrival and him doing anything public that looked anything like the Savior of the world, and then, of course, there's three days of waiting between his death and his resurrection. But then the church was born with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, but there was that 50-day wait, estimated 50 days at least, between all of Jesus' promises about the gift of the Spirit and the actual gift of the Spirit and the birth of the church at Pentecost. A slow God and a waiting people. That's a theme that you cannot outrun in the Scripture. Abraham and Sarah waited 100 years for a child. Joseph waited two years in prison. Isaiah and Jeremiah died waiting on God to deliver Israel from exile, as they were promising he would do. Simeon and Anna waited an entire lifetime at the temple to greet the Messiah when he arrived. Scripture from beginning to end shows us a God whose promises are true and trustworthy and slow. And if I had to summarize my own prayer life in a single sentence, I doubt I could do it much more accurately than this. God is slow and I am not. I've had this one prayer that I've been holding before God every single day since my family returned from summer vacation in July. And it goes something like this. God, would you please make me a man of a mellow spirit and a forgiving heart, gentle as a husband and patient as a father. And I started praying that because I noticed those two characteristics in Jesus, gentleness and patience, and I saw them on that list of the fruits of the Spirit, but I don't see them in me. I mean, I am like pretty self-controlled and at peace. I'm quick to confess. I'm wide-eyed in faith. All of the proactive expressions of the Spirit I've cultivated and I'm continuing to cultivate in my inner life, but gentleness and patience, those are reactive expressions of the Spirit, not proactive. They're measured not in the way that I plan and then intentionally live my day. They're measured in the way I react to the interruptions to the plan that I've got for my day. So how do you grow in gentleness and patience? How do you grow in something that you can't intentionally plan and practice? I think I create a painfully honest and contemplative relationship with my own depths. In other words, I observe and honestly name the gap between who I am and who I want to become. And then I trust God for the nourishment that I cannot produce within myself. I ask him to do within me what I don't seem to be able to do. And then I wait much longer than I'd like to, an uncomfortable amount of time. And in the six months I've been waiting, I've seen God answer all sorts of other prayers that I've prayed a whole lot less, a whole lot more quickly. I uh, prayed that we would have a formative and joyful Holy Spirit conference, and we've just come off that conference, and I was walking the park across the street in the dark of the early morning, praying this morning, and the first prayer off my lips was, God, you did it. And if you can do that, could you do the greater miracle? Could you change me? Could you form me into a man who in a core description of his personality is gentle and patient. Would you let me know your presence and the way that I react to all of life's interruptions, not just the way that I plan all of life's intentions? 
the greatest miracle that I can imagine this year is not revival in Portland or some aspect of exponential growth in our church or a far-off friend coming to faith. The greatest miracle that I can conceive of is that I would arrive next July and I would see, probably not in the moment that it's happening, but somewhere in hindsight, that all along the way, God was conspiring in the circumstances of my life that I didn't want and the waiting that lasted a whole lot longer than I wanted it to, to answer that deepest prayer that is within me as I held it before him. When God shows us his faithfulness, we give him back faith. So when I see God's faithfulness in answering smaller prayers like the one about the Holy Spirit conference, I give him back faith to say, God, if you can do that, I believe that you can do this. God, if you can do that, then I believe that you can complete the good work in me that you began. You see, some miracles God does really fast. He opens the eyes of the blind, he stands up the paralyzed, he feeds the 5,000, it all happens in an instant. And other miracles God does slowly, like teach Peter to keep a step behind him. That miracle required a denial, a crucifixion, a chaos moment of shame, and then restoration. Sometimes we pray, come Holy Spirit, and we wait a minute. Other times we pray, come Holy Spirit, and we wait a year, or a decade, or a lifetime. But it is the same Spirit that we pray to, and it is the same Spirit who does the work. God's greatest miracles require weaning. They require the willingness to be denied what we want instantly, to learn to to find rest in the presence of the giver, not in the gift that he provides. The French philosopher Simone Weil says, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. God is slow, which I guess is why Charles Spurgeon describes Psalm 131 out of all the 150 biblical psalms, the fastest to read and the slowest to learn. God is slow and gentle. And that means that, except in the very rarest of circumstances, you can cut off God's deepest and most essential work within you if you want to. You can get up from the long night of waiting. You can eject yourself. You can stop the work. You can move faster than God. You can collect a thousand instant stories of the Spirit's presence and power and miss out on the slowest, deepest, most essential work of the same Spirit. We subvert the slow work of God within us when we restlessly squirm or passively settle. Some of us are restless squirmers. We're prone to subvert spiritual waiting with our impatience and activity. We live by this subtle and deceptive quality of self-love where we are forever replanning and reforming our own formation. We commit to one way or rhythm of life and we live it until we become excited by the next compelling idea and then we switch up the plan. We get halfway through books and then jump into the next book. We make and break resolutions. We're always reinventing the way that God really wants to work within me in the spiritual season that I must really be in. It's this squirrely and distracted way of living that over time forms my inner life into a patchwork of confused desires when the truth is that waiting, the discomfort of growing up in Christ is holding one deep desire before him for a long period of time, a whole lot longer than you'd like to, until he can wean you and grow you up by the process of waiting that you never wanted to submit to in the first place. So to my fellow restless squirmers out there, keep still. Learn to trust in the slow, long, deep work of God.
But others of us, we passively settle. Spiritual waiting may look outwardly passive, but it is the furthest thing from it. The English words passive and passion both come from the Latin root word pati, which means to endure. Solitude is the spiritual practice that is equal parts passive and passionate. It involves listening to all the dysfunctional lies that we've believed, looking deeply at all the holes that, have, uh, that exist in my own soul, uncovering the desires that I deny or have never even discovered. You see, all the places that we live falsely, all the ways that we learn to portray some faux sense of commitment, a counterfeit version of peace that comes from living out of touch with our deepest desires so that we can feel okay so long as we never look at what we want most. Uh, for those who are prone to settle for what their life with God is, however short of Jesus' promises that may be, spiritual waiting means remaining with God as he restores that vision of who we really, deeply, and truly are, and then allowing him to form us into it over time. But the fruit for those who learn to wait on the Lord is hope. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. You see, we think it's peace that we're after because life is busy and our inner lives are frenzied and waiting is uncomfortable, so we want peace to help sustain us through the waiting, but God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need to grow up, and that's hope. Hope is a powerful force in this world. Hope allows a human being to envision and long for and then live into a better future than what seems presently possible. Hope is what fueled Martin Luther King's dream in a Birmingham jail cell and Nelson Mandela's in a Cape Town prison. Hope is what allows a young man to be the first in his family to graduate from high school and what drove his mother to work her hands to the bone to make that possible for him and then clap those same calloused hands at his graduation ceremony. Hope is what Yahweh put in Moses at the burning bush and what he put in Isaiah that allowed him to see beyond exile. Hope is what existed in Mary that made her worthy to be the mother of Jesus. And hope is what got planted in you the second you said yes to Jesus as Lord. Hope is not an extra dose of optimism for those whose lives are already going generally according to plan. Hope is a defiant, resilient, sometimes given, often willed choice to insist that I will see the mess of my life today, not through my own eyes, but through the eyes of Jesus and his suffering victory and his present promises. Hope is the realistic acknowledgement of my sorrow, my pain, and my suffering, and it is the realistic discovery of seeing God standing up in the midst of my sorrow and pain and suffering. Hope is the yeast of the spiritual life. Kirsten uh, bakes sourdough bread. I don't know anything about the process except for this, that if you work yeast into the dough and then watch it, no matter how long you look at it, you'll never see anything happening to it. But if you work yeast into the dough and then rest, go and get a good night's sleep, you'll wake up the following morning to see that little thing ballooned into something entirely different. Hope works like that within the disciple of Jesus. It is yeast. If we stare at it, we won't see anything happening immediately, but if we rest with hope, then slowly, gently, and altogether transformatively, we will be formed into something entirely different from within. 
And then the world around those who hope gets transformed in the same way not long after. You see, solitude outwardly charades as the spiritual practice of retreating from the world, when solitude is actually a spiritual practice that is about becoming a gift for the world. Solitude is for the sake of others. Thomas Merton says, we do not go into the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them. We do not leave them in order to have nothing more to do with them, but to find out the best way to do them the most good. One of the enemy's most subtle but debilitating uh, blows to our generation. We live in a generation in church history where there's this tiny but very good revival of spiritual practices, ancient to our faith, that have been forgotten by the generations before us. But one of the ways that the enemy is twisting uh, that and deforming it is he is causing us to relate to spiritual practices like they're life hacks or some way that is meant to uh, balance me out, when the truth is that all spiritual practice has this one common end, to form you into a drink offering that is poured out for the sake of others. Solitude is not a way to become more balanced. It's a way to be crucified with Christ, that I might be a gift to others in the world. In the slums of Calcutta, where the order known as the Sisters of Charity was founded by Mother Teresa, and where they to this day sacrificially serve among some of the most poor and forgotten peoples in the whole of the globe, there is a sign hanging above the door that leads from a house where nuns live an ordered life that includes and is grounded in solitude. A sign hangs above the door from their house leading into the slums, and that sign reads, there are no great things today. Only small things done with great love. That sounds a lot like Psalm 131. My eyes are not proud, Lord. I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. If we do not learn to wait like Jesus, neither can we learn to love our neighbor like Jesus. Wait on the Lord. Let him wean you, grow you up, and you will mature into love, into a sacrificial, self-giving sort of love that has no need for highlights, accolades, and admiration, but spends itself freely on others. There's the problem right there, young lady. You've bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. When you're waiting, you're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. The paradox of solitude is that we cover the steepest climb in the spiritual life by staying still. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that's been reliably passed down through church history that teaches us to wait in an impatient time and to live with a defiant, gritty sense of hope in our world today? Yes. Solitude is the spiritual practice of waiting with hope. Now, it's important that we don't confuse our part and God's part. It's the spirit who transforms us, not the practice. The practice simply holds us in the place that God can heal us deepest. Uh, Hank recently broke his arm, and so they put it in a cast. The prescription for his healing was this just needs to stay still for a long period of time. And solitude is that. It is a cast that forces you to hold still so that God can heal you in the deepest way. And solitude can be practiced a number of different ways. We can practice solitude annually, quarterly, or monthly through retreat. For instance, three times a year I do a 36-hour silent retreat for an extended period of solitude. 
or it can be practiced weekly through quiet. Uh, for me, on Friday mornings, I go on a run and I don't have any noise in my head and the prayers that I pray on my front porch while I'm drinking coffee after that run are typically the most honest and vulnerable of my week. But the place to start with solitude is definitely the daily practice of silent prayer which is also referred to as contemplative prayer or beholding prayer in different traditions. But whatever you call it, it's exactly what it sounds like, a kind of prayer with no or very few words. The psychologist and historical theologian Todd Hall defines solitude this way, a type of prayer focused on one's direct experience of God and Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It has to do with giving one's full undivided attention to relating to God in a passive, non-defensive, non-demanding, open way. I like this definition because it uncovers the truth that some people, uh, we think that silent prayer is a type of prayer where we're doing nothing, and it's not that. There's no such thing as prayer where you're doing nothing, and there's nothing particularly redemptive about silence. Silence is the harshest punishment in the U.S. prison system, solitary confinement. There's nothing redemptive about silence in and of itself. Silent prayer is a way of prayer where we intentionally quiet and still so that we can direct all of our deepest attention toward God. We're doing something very active and very intentional through our stillness. And silent prayer, out of all of the different practices that we'll cover in this teaching series, is the one that is most, uh, people feel most suspicious of. Uh, and that is despite the fact that it is founded on the pages of Scripture and is reliably found throughout church history. So if suspicion of the contemplative practices of the way of Jesus uh, is viewed as some, as some like untethered form of mysticism or some slippery slope into secular mindfulness rather than an active spiritual practice, where did that idea come from? Well, a, stu a study of global church history has found that many practices of solitude, uh, all of which lean more contemplative and experiential than they do cognitive, were both taught and practiced from the earliest days in church history all the way up to the 16th and 17th century Enlightenment, when practices of solitude declined as the uh, trust in scientific objectivism and intellectual capacity for whole life transformation increased. Suspicion toward contemplation is rooted not in the way of Jesus or on the pages of the Bible. Instead, it is rooted in the church's overreaction to responding to the questions of the Enlightenment, which wrongly assumed that changing someone's mind was sufficient for changing their entire life. Instead, the practice of solitude through silent prayer is found on the pages of Scripture and in the life of Jesus, and it was codified by the desert fathers and mothers in the third century who prayed two forms of prayer every day. Psalmody, which is vocal prayer inspired by the Psalms and other passages of Scripture, guiding a community into spoken conversation with God from the pages of Scripture, and contemplation, which they referred to as Quias, which is translated as rest, or the Greek hesychia, translated as sweet repose. This form of prayer is also founded on the pages of Scripture through the repetition of a simple breath prayer, which is a phrase from Scripture that I can pray in a single breath, an inhale and an exhale that anchors my mind back to where it's meant to be held, the most famous of which is, Lord have mercy, taken from the lips of the blind man Bartimaeus on the pages of the Gospels. 
And of course prayer involves both conversation and silence because prayer is relationship. Prayer is the relational center of the spiritual life and relationships often begin conversationally. Right, if you go on a first date or get to know a new friend, you're gonna feel the need to fill every empty space with conversation. And that's because of some mix of nervous excitement and just full-blown awkwardness that you feel in silence. And as that relationship matures, both of those forces that demand conversation lessen. The nervous excitement decreases, but so does the social awkwardness you feel in that person's presence. Who is the person you are least likely to feel nervous in front of in this world? It's probably your spouse or your best friend. And who is the person that you spend the most time with silently in this world? It's likely the same person. See, we often talk about the spiritual life as a journey, the spiritual journey. And that means that prayer is like road trip conversation. It involves laughter and talking about simple topics, but it also involves deeply listening and, and, and deeply sharing in a confessional way. And it involves long stretches of silence where the miles just tick by, but I feel perfectly at ease in the presence of someone else without making noise. Silent prayer has this one single aim, to become fully present to God. Human beings have the capacity and the danger of living somewhere other than the present. And most of us tend to live in either the past or the future. Being present is a skill. It is a muscle that we strengthen. And silent prayer is the way that we strengthen that muscle. And as we practice the presence of the God who is love, we grow in our capacity to be present to other people that we companion throughout the day with the same love. All right, how do we do it? Silent prayer is all about directing our gaze to God, beholding him, beholding me in love. Here's how I do it. Every morning I make a cup of coffee and I sit on my porch and I light the candle that sits next to my favorite chair that represents for me the presence of God who is always present to me. And I set a timer on my phone. Ten minutes is my sweet spot, but start wherever you are. There's nothing magic about a certain amount of time. And then I open my hands on my lap in front of me and I pray, come Holy Spirit. And then I wait. And my brain is kind of like a snow globe that's all shaken up. So the first thing that happens is everything that I've forgotten to do up to that point comes to mind. Like, we got to get this at the grocery store. i got to remind Kirsten about that. I need to email this person, and I never texted her back. Things like that. And so I pray this breath prayer, which for me is just Holy Spirit. And it's just an anchor. It's just a way of pulling my brain back to where I intended for it to be. And then it usually takes a few minutes, like a snow globe that you shook up and set down on a table for all of my over-busy imagination to settle down. And then I'm quiet. And in the quiet, I wait on the God who is growing me up in the discomfort of waiting. My close friend Gemma, who's a full-time working mother of four, including two-year-old twins, she's taught me so much about silent prayer. In the morning before her children wake, she spends a little bit of time with the Lord alone in prayer. She stills herself in the presence of God and she prays this breath prayer. In you, I live. 
And then as she makes her way throughout the day, as she is uh, buzzing to work and in between meetings, as she's waiting in line to pick up her lunch and then rushing back to school to pick up her kids and she's making her family dinner, she'll often return to that breath prayer and she'll pray it one of three ways. In you, I live. Or in you, I rest. Or in you, I delight. Depending on which of those feels most honest for her based on the circumstances at the moment. And you see, in this way, when we have a disciplined time of silent prayer with the Lord, something amazing begins to happen. We begin to discover God's presence woven all throughout our days and have this way of returning to Him in the chaos and busyness of our everyday lives. As we practice solitude over the long haul, we grow up from a squealing infant in the arms of God to a weaned child, a quiet inner life, I believe, is the canvas on which God paints his masterpieces. There's the problem right there, young lady. You bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. When you're waiting, you're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. Apart from waiting, you cannot become who God created you to be.